Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. So much. The five leading ladies nominated for the best performance by an actress are Ellen Burstyn for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Diane Carroll for Claudine, and Faye Dunaway for Chinatown, Valerie Perrine for Lenny, Jenna Rollins for A Woman Under the Influence, and the winner is... Ellen Burstyn in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. Today we're going to be talking about the 1975 ceremony year win for Ellen Burstyn for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Um, This is a very interesting year, one of the best, best actress uh, years ever in Best Actress history. Uh, Best Actor went to Art Carney for Harry and Tonto. Best Supporting Actor went to Robert De Niro for Godfather Part 2. Best Supporting Actress went to Ingrid Bergman for Murder on the Orient Express. And we actually covered that episode with Dan Dillabow. And if you haven't uh, heard that episode, I would recommend listening to it. It's very interesting. Uh, director, Best Director went to Francis Ford Coppola for The Godfather Part 2. And Best Picture went to The Godfather Part 2. Um Today I am joined by a friend, a comedian. Uh, he also does describe video for the visually impaired, and you might recognize him from the episode uh, for Emma Thompson for Howard's End. It's Josh Murray. Hey, Josh. Hello. How are you? Uh, wonderful. Yeah. I mean, ha- better now from watching these. I mean, what a great year. It really was a great year. And I'm going to be honest with you. Everybody, anybody knows, listen to this podcast. They know that I'm not crazy about 1970s movies in general. Some of them have really grown on me. Some of them are actually painful, but this was an incredible year. And just like round of applause to all the nominees, because this is going to be a good episode to discuss. And this is going to be a very hard pick of who we think maybe should have won. So why did you pick this year? Well, I had heard it's one of the best. And unlike last time, it's a lot of blind spots for me. I'd seen Chinatown, but none of the others. And it's a lot of my favorite actresses. And last time I had already seen the three I liked. And then the new ones to me were Angel Sheen and uh, uh, Love Field, so, oh, yeah. <laughs> which ended up being the worst one. So I'm like, I would like to have some positive discoveries and maybe come in <laughs> with enthusiasm, not just for movies I've known for years, but for things I just became excited about. So... <laughs> That's kind of fun. And it really could be one of the best fives ever. I mean, people say the Susan Sarandon win year is one of the best fives because you got like Casino, I think, and uh, mm-hmm. Madison County. But I'm not big on leaving Las Vegas. Uh, it's not really Elizabeth Shue's fault, but it's kind of a little bit everyone's fault, that movie. <laughs> and then the next. Wait, are you not a fan? I love that movie. It's it's fun. Um but that is a really strong five. And people also say the Natalie Portman five is maybe the best this century. Cause I think you got kids mm. are all right. And winter's bone and, and some other stuff there. Rabbit hole, I think is that year. Yep. And uh, I could, I could agree with that, but this year is really interesting because it's just got a couple of all timers and it's really got nobody who is crap. I know like it's often like, and, and there's not really a movie where you have to be like, oh, well, it's a horrible movie, but that actress is doing her best thing. Because I think sometimes 
some of the actresses are bad and it's it's really a sign of a great actress is the range and having certain things you're right for and to me like we've all seen Nicole Kidman be bad a couple times we've all seen Julianne Moore be bad a couple times it doesn't take right. anything away from their screen persona that they have a niche and sometimes someone cast them perfectly for it mm-hmm I think that with this particular year, I mean, I remember for the Natalie Portman year, I think I picked Annette Benning, but also that was a really tricky one of who we were going to pick. But for this year specifically, you're right. Everybody was extremely well cast. I also, um, I also like, I've never seen Chinatown and Faye Dunaway in this movie. Um, it just seemed like such an effortless, it almost was like Bonnie and Clyde-esque, but then like, it was different, and it's like kind of this like side of Faye Dunaway that I've never really seen before. So I thought that was really interesting. So why don't we just use that as our jumping off point? Um, so Chinatown, very quickly, a private detective is hired to expose an adulterer in 1930s Los Angeles and finds himself caught up in a web of deceit, corruption, and murder. It's actually uh, number 156 on the top 250 movies of all time on IMDb, and uh, it is directed by Roman Polanski. Gross. And I have never seen this movie before. I'm actually kind of sad because I watched this movie first. I absolutely love this movie. It's everything that you want. One of those like whodunit, what's going on, sort of a mystery. And I think that's sort of like, you know, eye roll at the like racist, like, you know, glass grass thing. And it was like, oh, and that I thought was just so stupid and kind of like lazy writing. But otherwise, I fucking love this movie. Um... And uh, Jack Nicholson, this was like when he was on fire, uh, Faye Dunaway is just the perfect sort of, she's not a femme fatale in this movie, but like she kind of has that femme fatale energy because the whole time you suspect her. Yep. And then she also in the movie uh, is like a victim and then it ends in a really corrupt way. And then it has that famous line, like, forget it, Jack, like, you know, it's Chinatown or whatever the fuck. And they make fun of it in the Simpsons where the chiropractors and they're like, forget it, Homa, it's Cairo town. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Um, So I'd never seen this before. And this was the first movie that I watched in this list. And I'm like, kind of sad. I wish I finished on this movie because it is such a Hollywood classic. It feels like a classic. It's, it's fun, amazing acting, amazing, amazing action scenes. And I just really, really love this movie. So had you seen this before? Well, you said you did see this before. So what did you think about uh, Rewatch? And what did you think about Faye Dunaway? So this was the only one I had seen before. And, but I, I last saw it when I was like discovering classics when I was like 14. Like it went way over my head. I didn't even really mm-hmm. remember the full ramifications of the big twist. But it was really good. And I feel, I don't feel too bad about loving it too. Cause I don't actually credit that much of it to Polanski. Like it's got great framing, but it's got a great cinematographer. And I, mm-hmm. I feel like most of it is just the script, the plotting yeah. and the way that everything comes back. This is, I mean, I was a film minor and this is one of the most taught and studied screenplays, like probably still today. And <laughs> Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway are just like on fire. And you can kind of tell that this movie reverberated because Jack, I think, wins Best Actor of the Year after this for Cuckoo's Nest, and then Faye Dunaway wins two years later for Network. So it's almost like they were due, like this movie was such fire and it might have been brought back to some theaters or people were just kept talking about it. And it just still really works. To me, it feels like the very end of noir and like the beginning of neo-noir. Like Mm -hmm. it's a bit of both. It has, like its villain is ultimately 
everything wrong with like men and corporations. And it almost feels like a ridiculous number of twists, how many things Noah Cross is up to and or has done. But I feel like it's just like closing the book on noir in a way. And it's like, now we're in glorious Technicolor. It's not black and white anymore. We're doing neo-noirs and the classic era. We're in new Hollywood now. We're closing that Mm. book. And I love that. And you definitely get that vibe. I also just love that it's a really unsatisfactory ending. And that sense of corruption is kind of like the ending where it's just like there's nothing that you can do about it. And it's like a bleak, it's a non-Hollywood you know, typical sort of ending. Um, but also, I mean, what is this the second time now that Faye Dunaway has been nominated for being shot up in a car at the end of a movie? Because I think that's how Bonnie and Clyde ends, doesn't it? Like famously. So yep, yep. They're they're like, we need to shoot up somebody in a car. They're like, where's what's Faye Dunaway's number? Get her on the phone. This time she didn't even uh, get to step out of the car. It's true. Um, I absolutely thought too a a, a recurring theme to get nominated for an Oscar in the 1970s and as a female, did you just need to get like physically abused by your boyfriend or husband or significant other? Because there was not one movie this year where the girl did not get slapped or punched or pushed or something like physical abuse was just, I don't know that the brand of the seventies movies or something to show like dark reality. I don't know what it was, but it's just, I thought, Okay, maybe this movie, like the girl's not going to get like punched or slapped in the face, but no, every single one of these movies had it. It was pretty fucked. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting threads this week, and I think we'll get into it more because the other four are actually about like a marriage, basically, or a partnership. And this is sort of uh, different. It's it, it might be the smallest of the roles this week, along with maybe Valerie Perrin, but I think Faye, she's really one of my favorites, and yeah, this is one of those movies where I really remember why it it's not an enormous role but it's such a memorable one and yeah the ending is just so dark and the crazy thing about the ending is how john houston like essentially kidnapping the girl is like an afterthought that you don't even really notice until after because of the what's happening with with evelyn right uh and then you're like no her her sister and, and her daughter uh as as she says in the twist but uh is essentially getting kidnapped by this known like pedophile uh satan figure right and they kind of just move on with it yeah uh, and then that's kind of cut to the credits but i think another thing i think something that faye dunaway did very very well was sort of like um emoting to the to the audience that she was <laughs> she was like a suspect she seemed suspicious but she also seemed kind of like scared at the same time so she was suspicious, but then you were suspicious that she didn't look as suspicious. Like, do you know what I mean? You're like, okay, you're up to no good. But then you're like, mm, but you also seem kind of terrified. So it's like, I think you're part of it, but I don't necessarily think that you did it. But she's just doing all of that, like with her eyes and like the way that she's just like saying like little tiny things and like little bits. And I think that she did very, very well in this movie. Um, talking about you know, um, you know, Faye Dunaway getting slapped because Jack Nicholson at one point is like wanting answers out of her. So in order to get the answers out of her, he starts like whacking her and backhanding her and he's like, tell me. And she, I, I, I didn't, I don't know if I really understood that scene, but the way that she handled that scene was extremely convincing. And I actually thought that that was kind of, I hate to admit it, but I think that that was actually kind of her Oscar scene. But here we go. After several takes 
um, of doing that scene, it didn't look right because Jack Nicholson wasn't actually slapping her. So Faye Dunaway got annoyed and told Jack Nicholson to actually slap her. He did, and he felt very guilty for it, uh, even though it was Faye Dunaway's um, uh, decision. But in the end, like that was the final cut that made it into the movie. And I think that for Faye Dunaway, it really, really worked because for me, it was the Oscar scene. It was the the biggest moment. It was the... Um, there were so many mixed emotions going on of not even, not just being slapped and dealing with that, but also um, admitting to him like what, that her daughter was like a child of incest and rape and um, the shame with that and the intensity of the emotion. And just, there was so much going on. And I think that she just absolutely nailed that scene because really at one point I thought I was like, is this category fraud? You know, do we got Talia Shire and Rocky going on right now? Because it was, I wrote it down an hour and seven minutes into the movie. She'd only been in like three or four scenes. So I thought, okay, this movie's like what, two hours, two hours and 15 minutes. And she's only, she's barely been in this movie. And I was like, Oh, but then when you have these big scenes that, you know, I'm talking about now, she really sells it and she really uh, earns her place in the lead actress category for this nomination because she uh, really, as the movie progresses, really brings the thunder. Yeah, I think so too. Like mostly I'm just impressed. She's in the whole back half. So it is, a, it's certainly a starring role because it's a movie star role. It's a two names above the title kind of movie. And mm-hmm. it is, to me, the, my favorite scenes were actually the earliest because it's just kind of where she wins me over with the, like, a femme fatale, but for the modern age, for new Hollywood, for the 70s, it's different. And uh, eventually, I think it turns out she's not really all of that amoral or uh, bad a person. Like, she is a victim. And it was exciting. And I found myself just really impressed that I was considering her over much larger roles Uh like I was considering her against the other nominees who are all mm-hmm. either the protagonist or one of two protagonists. And here, well, it's kind of a lead. It's kind of a starring role. She's Jack is very much the protagonist, but they play off each other so well. They just elevate each other. And she is just so much fun because, you know, she's kind of the key to the movie. And I think that's what makes it a starring role is the twist belongs to her. And all of these, uh, the climax in its own way belongs to her. And it's all about, she has to sell you on the justice so that you buy why Jake is so crushed by the end that no one is letting justice happen. You you want the best for her or you want these people who have wronged her and wronged the city essentially to pay and then you're just as mad as Jake Giddies is when he's being dragged away. Forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. Like there, yeah. There's no dealing with this because you had to go to a neighborhood that you hate and... Uh, Meanwhile, this woman suffered lifelong abuse. I think the only thing of the movie that was kind of driving me a little crazy was whenever she and Jack or, or Jake, sorry, it's because it's so close in 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 name that I, I keep confusing it, but whenever they like started hooking up and then they like went to bed together and then they were like together together all of a sudden. I didn't understand that. And I thought that was kind of out of nowhere. It just kind of seemed like 
um, a little random and a little unnecessary to the plot. I don't know why he needed to, because whether, like, at the end of the day, like, he was trying to help her. I don't think that he had to also, like, fall in love with her. But, like, she had her husband get murdered, like, literally days ago. And then she's already jumping into bed with Jack. And it's just, like, I thought that was a little unnecessary. Um, That, honestly, is kind of my only critique of the movie. I, I don't know if I understood um, I'm not to say that they don't have chemistry. I'm just saying that for the character, like after my husband ha- had just been murdered, yeah. I don't know if I would be jumping into bed with somebody like literally days later, but because it's Faye Dunaway and she's gorgeous. And that's the way that obviously the male gaze, especially in the 1970s, viewed women and viewed actresses as just like sexual objects and stuff like that. Um, I understand that it's a different time, but just when you watch it now, I just think that for the character, I just don't think that made any sense. That That's really my only critique. Yeah, and we're comparing her to four movies that spend a lot more time on establishing their romances and selling mm-hmm. them as like one of the A-plots of the movie. And here it just sort of felt like the noir trope of like the flirtation. And it's a little bit less bad because her and her husband were both cheating on each other and did not seem to care that much about each other. But still, it's it's a little jarring. And I feel like, they were just excited that the 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 production code era is over and noirs used to have to do this without right. being allowed to show them in bed or imply the sex. They had to do it through flirtation. So now it's like, oh, now we can show them like in bed and like basically naked. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's exactly what it was. I, I, I just mean like now when you watch it and, you know, 2022, you're just kind of thinking like, mm, that's a bit random and I, I don't know about that. But I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, one thing though, that I will also give like solid compliments to, uh, to Faye Dunaway in terms of just her star quality of all of the nominees, um, this year, I would say that there's this thing that Faye Dunaway has that none of them do. It's this like insane presence where it's like when she is talking, when she is on screen, it's like you pay attention to her and you watch her. And it's like, I can't keep my eyes off of her. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's the costumes. I don't know if it's like her expression. I don't know if it's the way that she's delivering her lines, but she just has this inexplicable quality that I just don't think any of these other nominees have where it's just, she's just such a star and she just makes the movie. And it's just, she's just so classic. I I don't know how to describe it. I don't know if it's you're born with that or it's like an actual skill but whatever it is, like she has it, and it's very present in this movie. And and she's very classical, and that sells the 1940s noir thing of it is that she kind of looks like a Veronica Lake figure. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in the 70s, people talk a lot about what happened with men in the 70s, where you get these guys who don't look like movie stars, who are like spunky, uh, often short guys like Al Pacino and Dustin Hoffman, and that's the new type of star where it's right. all about the acting. And I feel like the female equivalent might be that you move from people like Faye Dunaway, who are very radiant and glowing, to people who sort of represent a working class sensibility, uh, like Ellen Burstyn or Jenna Rollins. But the only difference is because of sexism, they don't become massive stars like Al Pacino. They just become right. respected actresses for decades and right. who are probably undervalued overall. Um, on, I'll just say this fact that I, I just saw here. I thought this was very interesting and then, and then we'll just move on. But, um, this is kind of interesting. So at the time of filming, Jack Nicholson had, uh, just started a relationship with Angelica Houston and this made the scenes with her father, John Houston, who is the corrupt guy that like, um, you know, in the movie, like raped his daughter and kidnapped the kid at the end. 
Uh, this made the scenes with John Houston very uncomfortable, especially as the only time that Angelica was on set was the day that they were filming the scene where uh, Jack and John are interrogating, or Jack Nicholson is interrogating him. And uh, at one point, <laughs> John Houston says, Mr. Gitz, did you sleep with my daughter? <laughs> yep. And I'm, I thought that was very, very interesting. That, But I guess that would actually add to the scene and make it more real. Um, I thought that was kind of funny, though. That's wild. Also, also, we have Diane Ladd at the start here. She's in two of the movies. Yeah, I did. Oh, I clocked her, too. Yeah, I fucking love Diane Ladd. She's she's the best. She was also nominated this year for Best Supporting Actress for um, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And she actually had won the BAFTA. And um, this particular year, uh, Ellen Burstyn winning, because I actually genuinely think, because it's such a strong year, that I don't think anybody knew genuinely who was going to win. I watched the um, the broadcast like on YouTube just like the little video. And I like to watch all the like five little boxes with their face in it for the oh, reactions, yeah. which I think is so funny to, it's almost like kind of cruel that they do that. Cause we have to like, look at them lose, but four losers and one winner. But Ellen Burstyn was the only one that was not at the ceremony. And everybody, every single one of those actresses, they all, you could tell were like, who the fuck is going to win. And when they called Ellen Burstyn, everybody were, everyone was like, Oh my God, really? Like everybody was shocked because I don't think anybody knew, honestly, who the shoe-in was for Best Actress. And if I had to guess, I would say because the movie was so beloved and such a hit, I would guess that a lot of people were probably expecting Faye Dunaway that night. Probably, yeah. And she she just had that star quest. She was the hugest movie star, so that would that would make a lot of sense. And with Bonnie um, and Clyde having already happened, it's like, oh, she's due, and, and she's had all these good exactly. roles already. Yeah, no, exactly. And... Uh, Okay. Well, anyway, Faye Dunaway, um, absolutely fantastic. If you've never seen the movie Chinatown, I highly recommend giving it a watch. Um, uh, wonderful, wonderful performance from Faye Dunaway. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else that you would like to add before we move on? Uh, no, I think the, I think the broken nose uh, band aid is is really cool. I, I think it. I, I love whenever there is a protagonist with like a facial injury that happens early in the movie that they carry the rest of the movie. Yeah, <laughs> it would like slowly heal and get smaller and smaller. And then it turned into like a little, um, they like stitched it up. But when they first sliced his nose, I was not expecting it. And I, I like I threw up a little like it was so nasty. They should have had one of the tiny uh, circle band-aids for like the very last scenes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I had to go buy a box of band-aids the other day because my cat like just mauled me and... um they are so expensive. A box of band-aids is like $10.99. I'm like, it's fucking band-aids. Is that am I crazy to think that? Is $10.99 expensive for band-aids? I've yes. never bought them before. Yes, it I is. I don't know. We need to bring back the thug from uh, Chinatown to to make them super commonly needed. And well, maybe that'll drive <laughs> up just, the price. I don't know. I don't know. Cause I just in my head, I'm literally just like, because it costs money to like injure yourself, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. It already costs right. blood. Like, that's too much. <laughs> Okay, so let's move on and let's talk about. I'm probably going to pronounce this so very wrong. Uh, let's talk about Valerie Perrine, Perrine in uh, Lenny. So this movie is about Lenny Bruce. Obviously, us being stand-up comedians, we know who Lenny Bruce is and uh, what he was and what he did. Uh, but for anybody who doesn't know the movie, uh, this is the story of acerbic, I don't know what that word means, 1960s comic Lenny Bruce, whose groundbreaking no-holds-barred style and social commentary was often deemed by the establishment as too obscene for the public. And he actually has been brought back fictionally in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was just a comic that like wasn't censored. And obviously uh, there was like a morals clause in the 50s of what you could say on stage. So he was getting arrested. Um, the N word is said. The F word is said. A lot of racist things are said um, for for comedy. Uh, and, you know, obviously uh, for the time, like that was something that was probably very groundbreaking. Obviously, we've learned since then of why that's offensive and why you don't say those things. But still, uh, for the time, it was remarkable. And this movie is extremely well acted. And I got to tell you, as a stand-up comedian myself, I cannot, for the life of me, stand watching actors do impersonations of stand-up comedians on stage it's always cringe i always skip through the marvelous mrs mazel like on stage scenes they make me so uncomfortable because i'm very aware that i'm watching an actor do an impression of a stand-up comedian however dustin hoffman is the one exception i will give to uh that general experience that I have. He is very believable as Lenny Bruce and Valerie Perina's Honey Bruce. Oh my God. She is so good. They kind of do it in this dramatic slash like documentary style. And a lot of it is um, Valerie being um, interviewed by, oh, by the way, the voice was actually Bob Fosse, um, who was the director of this movie. And in the movie, you know, Honey Honey Brewster in real life is like um is a showgirl. She's a, a kind of burlesque uh, performer, and um obviously for the 1950s that would be quite unconventional. So it's just a lot of fun seeing her Valerie Perrine really go there with Honey, really doing justice to Honey's story, um and just seeing the way that her and Lenny work together and fall in love and how she becomes addicted to drugs and how she gets arrested and like. Just the way that the both their chemistry was so wonderful. And I just I've seen this movie before, but I loved rewatching it. And I just thought Valerie as Honey was such a good choice and um, s- such a fantastic role for her. Um, what, what did you think about the movie and, and uh, what did you think about Valerie? Well, uh, I love Bob Fosse. I liked the movie. Um, I had not seen it. And much like Scorsese, it was like this has always been a blind spot from a director who I love. And right. I thought, I, I thought Valerie Perrin, I'm like, okay, it's a Lenny Bruce biopic. This is going to be the smallest role. This is going to be category fraud, but it opens on like a monologue from her. It's perhaps like a bigger role percentage wise of the movie than Faye Dunaway's. And it makes so much sense from Fosse that he's more interested in like the showgirl side of it. She disappears a little bit in the middle but mm-hmm. it's a substantial role. And I actually, I, I'm the same way with, with actors playing comics. And even Dustin Hoffman, there was some things, it's like so often they're playing for the camera and not the audience. So you don't feel the like connection aspect or like the spontaneous body language aspect. And it's not quite like, like there's a lot that hasn't aged well about Lenny Bruce's comedy. And there's a lot that was so innovative and important that uh, is just hard to care about the same way that you arguably should. But Mm -hmm. when I watch the real Lenny Bruce, he has a little more presence and a little less winking than Dustin Hoffman. I didn't love him. But to me, Valerie Perrin was the highlight of the movie. And it makes so much sense that Bob Fosse, director of all that jazz and cabaret, locked onto that character and that those scenes like sparkle the life. And it's also the part of the movie where Hoffman is good, I think, because there's scenes together and also his scenes in court uh, where you don't have the stage actor disconnect. 
pretending to be a comic and you can just relish a performance like Valerie Perrin's, I think she steals the movie. Oh, she really does. And you're right. But that dip, whenever she kind of disappears, I mean, you know, I don't really know if I, I don't, that didn't really affect uh, my opinion of, of the performance or whether or not she should be in a, in a lead because it's like when Gina Rollins in a woman under the influence, like kind of disappears when she gets shipped off to the funny farm, you know, you're kind of like, well, that kind of makes sense because I mean, the movie is called Lenny. Right. And um, it's the same with Chinatown. All three of those, the the woman has a starring role. They are just movies about a dynamic and about what these people do for each other. Mm -hmm. And so this movie was nominated for six Oscars, but it won zero. Uh, the character Sherman Hart, the one that kept like putting the the cigar like in his mouth, and he was like doing like a racist impression of like a Japanese person. Um, so that was actually based on Milton Berle, who was actually still alive when the movie came out, but they just changed it to Sherman Hart because in case like he would sue for libel. Um, Lenny was actually originally like the role of Lenny was actually originally offered to Al Pacino. And Al Pacino actually later said to Larry King in an interview that this is the only regret of his career that he has of not taking this role. Would be fascinating. Yeah. And uh, Lenny Bruce died August 3rd, 1966 at 40 of a drug overdose. Um, But I think the way that Valerie Perrine, I, I, I really, I mean... So the way that they fall in love together, they have wonderful chemistry. I love how sex positive she is. But then I love whenever things kind of start going downhill, like whenever she agrees to like have like a reluctant threesome, like with another girl. But then Lenny is like kind of making fun of her for it and like making it seem like it's her fault and the way that she's reacting to those scenes. And then whenever she has to start working again because things aren't going well for Lenny and then she starts getting into drugs and then she, they had a kid and she's never there for the kid and she's always like fucked up. And then whenever she goes to jail, even whenever Lenny goes to like visit her in jail, like those are also some really, really nice scenes because at first when I saw, uh, or when I was, uh, when I, cause um, like whenever, you know, there's the flowers and then, he comes into the room and the room is just covered in flowers. And then she's like, you know, why don't you come in big boy and pick some flowers? I'm like, Oh God. I'm like, what is this role? Like what? Like it's these super hyper sexualized roles for women that you see at these times that are always being rewarded by the Oscars. And I'm like, Oh God, but it's more than that. And you see how complicated and layered of a performance it is whenever she's struggling with drugs and alcohol and struggling with being a mother and she's not present for her child. And, um, she doesn't really have a lot of remorse about that. And for the time that's, that was probably very interesting. And to yeah. see the, 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 the mother go to jail, not the father. I mean, this is before Kramer versus Kramer, right? Where it's like only the mother can be the, the good parent and the father is always the bad parent. But in this case, it was kind of the opposite. And so I just thought it was a really interesting role, especially for the time. I know this is based on a real person, but like, I just love that Valerie Perrine, really sold the character of honey and i just totally bought it like they just had such wonderful chemistry yeah i think uh it was really interesting how they're both the problem in different ways like she has these parenting issues and then he has his arrests and these things are interfering with their life but yeah she she does feel so sexually liberated in a really interesting way and i love how they cut it with uh 
with his routines that are about how women do want sex sometimes under very specific circumstances. And then they show her desire. And it is just really interesting. I feel like because Fosse is someone who's not necessarily drawn to comedy or super interested in comedy normally, we lucked out and got this movie where it, it is more sympathetic to the, the, woman, the female character than almost anything you'd find in the 70s and more sympathetic True. to her than it is to Lenny in so many ways. And I just mm-hmm. love that. It really sparkles to life because a biopic and especially a biopic of a male artist and especially, especially a biopic of a provocative male artist who was groundbreaking, you would expect to have the worst wife character. And mm-hmm. this is breaking so many rules in that to the point where you look at biopics today and you're like, what are you doing? What are you doing with these like uh, nagging wives or like these supportive wives? It's like, this could be a role. If you choose to give your actress something, then you can't, you can't pretend that you can't just because you're bio biographing like a famous man. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so uh, interesting though. You're right. The way that they have chosen to portray her and especially like for, uh, 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 the time. I think my favorite scene of hers, uh, it actually was kind of a small scene. It's whenever she makes that like desperate phone call, uh, for money and she's like all strung out and he's like, we already talked about this. And then she's asking for like $200 and he's like, I don't know if I have that much, but they both clearly still love each other. And the way that, um, she sounds on the phone, it's just, she sounds embarrassed. Like you can hear it in her voice and, and, and she's just so broken down, but she's so desperate too, because she needs the money and whether it's for drugs or for, you know, God knows what it's like, that's, that's not relevant. It's just her desperation and where we started with her and like where she's at now. And you, you feel really bad for her. She technically has abandoned her family, but you still feel bad for her. And I think that is a credit to the acting. And I think it's a credit to, making the character sympathetic. And I, I think that she just she just did a really, really good job. Yeah, you nailed it. That's the best scene. The moment in that, I think it's the same phone call where she is just like, oh, Lenny, like a bottle, talks a little bit and then it's just like, what do you want? And he's like, you called me. And then she's like, oh. And that <laughs> confusion, she just plays uh, specificity so well and like a little tiny heartbreaking situation. Her performance is like 80 like small heartbreaks and I just feel for mm. her so much. I know. I also feel bad just the way that she talks about addiction and being trapped in it and stuff like that. Like I struggle, you know, with alcohol and, you know, I don't do drugs anymore, but like I, you know, was um, I, like I did Coke like all, for like a long time. And, you know, um, if I, like those kinds of scenes, like I can really relate to them and whether or not she as an actress has those kinds of real life experiences, I don't know. And I don't think it's relevant because it just seemed very real and she really sold it for me yeah it's not a stereotype and she is fully capable well high to do certain tasks which is a lot more true it's just like sometimes it comes in waves and and sometimes you don't know there's a lot more nuance and uh, a lot less of the stereotypes that you associate with with drug movies yeah (laughs) well i'll tell you the scenes when Lenny Bruce is on stage all strung out and he is bombing, girl, that is so <laughs> fucking triggering. Uh, I can't because I have been there where I was so drunk on stage acting a damn fool. And when I watch it, I just, I have to skip it because it's so triggering. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. But good job to, uh, you know, Dustin Hoffman, because clearly it was very believable. Yeah, I I, I, I like 60% buy him as a comic, but I, I fully buy him as a, as a drug user and the rest of the dialogue <laughs> scenes of the movie and especially provoking the judge, everything with that, I really, really dug. Uh, yeah, that was really good too. Um, the last shot of the movie where you see him on the floor like naked overdose, that actually was a shot of the real Lenny Bruce, not Dustin Hoffman. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't tell. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, do you have anything else that you would like to add to Valerie Perrine's performance before we move on? No, I just, I, I love all the beats of it. I think we really, really tore into like what is special about that one. I think so too. Uh, maybe because it's a soft place in our heart because of comedy. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Best Actress listeners. Enjoying the show? Want to hear more? Access our entire catalog of Best Actress episodes from the very beginning, ad-free, by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com bestactress. By subscribing, you will also gain access to new episodes one day earlier than their normal release day. Best Actress Podcast will always have 10 free episodes available, but with the release of a new episode, the oldest will go to Patreon, where you can access it anytime with your subscription. Come on, ladies, it's a Fritz Bernays. It's no question. Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe. Okay, so let's talk about a woman under the influence, uh, Gina Rowland. So... Uh, very quickly, this is really more of like an emotional relationship family piece. So basically, all um, uh, Mabel is her name in the movie. She's a mother and she's a wife and she is loved by her husband, Nick, who is played by Peter Falk. Um, she is extremely mentally ill and it places a strain on um, their marriage and her life and her relationship with her children. This is a two and a half hour movie that is so fucking boring. <laughs> I am just going to put this out there. However, Gina Rollins is fucking brilliant. Um, her performance is absolutely incredible. It's um, She's crazy, but not like caricature crazy like cartoonish crazy because she has like these manic episodes that i totally buy um i don't know if i personally know anybody that's like that um let's say off but she does a really good job of making it seem real um, she brings this super intensity to the screen where she doesn't even have to be doing anything, but you're just nervous of what she might do. Um, and I, this is another movie where Peter Falk is just coming in and, and slapping the shit out of Gina Rollins like so many times. Um, I don't know if there was themes of suicide, but at one point she does cut herself when she's having a manic episode. She gets sent to the funny farm. The performance is so good. I completely, she actually won a bunch of these precursor awards. I think that she won the Golden Globe. I know she won the National Board of Review. She won a lot of these precursor awards. I feel like a lot of people thought that she was going to win. What I think likely hurt her chances of winning this is the movie drags on and on and on. There are scenes that go on for like 10 minutes and it's like, I just don't understand the purpose of it. But then you find out that it's directed by, I'm going to always pronounce this so wrong, John Cassavetes. Nailed it. I think it is. Oh, beautiful. Okay. I'm so bad at these. I'm so bad at pronouncing these names. 
And he's an actor. So obviously he is going to really delve into the emotional journey of of the scene and the character. But sometimes you need a non-actor as a director to kind of reel in some of those scenes because they just get really dragged out. Maybe for the 1970s, this was interesting and different to see characters told this way in a more realistic way. But watching it in 2022, I just have to say, yeah, some of these fucking scenes, I girl, like I checked out like three or four times. I was like, I, I can't. Like I had to watch this movie in installments. Two and a half hours probably could have been an hour and a half. However, the one thing that I will say is Gina Rollins is insane in this movie. It's no, not like, well, like I guess no, like no pun intended, but like literally like so good. Um, this is, I think, the best performance I've ever seen from her. And uh, it, totally understand this Oscar nomination. So had you, you, you hadn't seen this before. So what did you think? And, and what did you think of her performance? Well, uh, I'm happy to hear your perspective because I actually love this movie. Okay. <laughs> which is a very straight male thing for me to say uh, about Cassavetes in general. But I completely always respect people not digging Cassavetes movies because it's a very specific vibe and it's always aggressive repetition uh, mm-hmm. to like sort of hammer in a point. It's everything is serving the performances. And for me, mm-hmm. as someone who um, a lot of my aspirations in life are like, working in in some kind of like biography and talking about uh the art and science of acting itself like it, like you it fascinates me and i feel like cassavetti really serves that up some of his movies do annoy me he has a movie called husbands that is just three guys going to bars getting drunk and being the worst and it's uh <laughs> himself peter falk and ben gazera and oh, wow. uh that movie is a bit much but this one is the one i have to say i find the most valuable just because I feel like it's a game changer. I feel like it sort of paves the way for a lot of the mental illness movies, some of them a lot more merciful in like 90 minutes that come afterwards. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I feel like a lot of them are taking language for this. And as someone who works captioning a lot of reality shows, I feel like the camera work is really influential to like chaos and arguments and the way that he he films them. And then there's Jenna Rollins and who was his wife. And this is just, she's a wild person to never win an Oscar for me because she's so committed to everything she does. And Mm -hmm. they made more conventional sort of fun movies together, like Gloria or whatever, where there's more action and a plot. But uh, this is really uh, her throwing everything into a performance. And I just find it so important and heartbreaking uh, to have this empathy for her because as much as she's called crazy, which is, an outdated term in terms of having any like usefulness. I really think it's Peter Falk's character, Nick, who is more uh, crazy in terms of his priorities and what he's doing Mm. and the ways Mm -hmm. he is mistreating and neglecting uh, and annoyed by her. I I feel like there's something wrong with him too. And it's just the language of people who can't take care of themselves who are sometimes with in terms of a spouse or a parent or a caretaker of some kind, someone who also has no idea how to take care of them and how they can kind of like Lenny, uh, they can each be damaging each other in different ways and the partnership is dooming. But in so many ways, it does feel like she would be better off uh, without him, even though her parents are, are nothing, especially understanding of her, her, her real mom playing her mom, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I just liked to watch her work and think and react and the things that make her so happy and that she's convinced are so important in the moment. 
I just kind of felt it. But it, for a movie that I loved, it's a movie that I would like want to like wait 15 years and then revisit or something. It, it lives <laughs> in me a little bit. Like it got under my skin what she's doing. But mm. I do not begrudge anyone uh, hating every second of it or being intrigued and then just getting worn down by how much of it is about repetition. I mean, for me, I, I certainly was intrigued by the performance and the way that she was really committing to it. And she made a person seem, you know, um, like mentally ill without making it seem like a stereotype. And it's a type of mental illness uh, performance that I've never really seen before. And I think that for the time, this was probably very groundbreaking. Um I also just love the little tiny details. Like whenever at the very beginning of the movie, whenever she goes into that bar and then brings that guy home, when she's walking to the bar, like she has no shoes on. Mm-hmm. And I ha- that's, but that's not relevant, but like it's in the scene. And so you kind of have to catch it. And there's these little things where you're like, is she not wearing any shoes? And you go, oh shit, like she's fucking crazy. And you're like, what is she doing? Like, because she's also harassing people on the street for like the the time. And um, by the way, fun fact about those people that she was harassing on the street for like what time it was when she was waiting for the school bus. Those were actually her real life friends from school. Incredible. <laughs> but when she has those scenes where you're like, she goes into the bar, she's not wearing any shoes. And then she's talking to this guy, she brings him home and then she's drunk. And then she's clearly, I don't know if it was like a date rapey situation, but like maybe because I I think that she kept telling him to stop, but then the next scene it's the morning and he's still there. So I'm assuming that's what happened. But again, it's not about what's happening. It's more just as the audience, you have to just understand that for, um, her character, uh, uh, Mabel, she is, this is just her norm. It's like this ridiculousness and stuff. You don't focus on the ridiculousness. It's like, you just focus on the fact that for her, it's like just another day. And I thought that was very interesting and very, very well done, but you're right. Also, Peter Falk, who was such an asshole in this movie, so insanely abusive physically and, and verbally, but like, um, you can tell that he very, very much loves her in his own abusive sort of way, but it is a little heartbreaking whenever she is coming back from the funny farm and she's acting kind of not herself. And then he starts to become upset and he's like, be yourself, you know, be yourself. I want you to be yourself. And, and, and those kind of scenes are, are, are heartbreaking. But then when she starts being herself again, then he starts like beating the shit out of her and you're just like, okay, like, what the hell do you want? But again, it's supposed to be like that because the whole movie is supposed to be, sorry for lack of a better word, insane. Like all of it is just supposed to be like, I can't believe that this is happening, but we as the audience are supposed to be like, well, that's just how their world is. And we're just supposed to kind of go along with it. And I just thought that was really well done. Yeah. A hundred percent. I like, I want to be clear. I think it's more uh, important and groundbreaking in terms of like the history of basically screen acting approaches and uh, sort of when new Hollywood's at its peak here, just this performance that is like you, if you're going to see this, you are going to experience these, these two performances really that are uh, enormous and doing everything. I think it's more important in terms of like acting than it is anything like especially accurate in terms of depicting mental illness. It's just sort of like this exercise that I find, fascinating and worthwhile 
But the thing that I do attach to is how how she thinks something is so important that isn't. And I feel like that's something I can relate to with people who and partners who deal with with mental illness. And also how similar to Valerie Perrin, she is very proud of herself when she has like moments of normalcy and like relief. And I don't know, she just was somehow speaking my language. And even though you're supposed to view this as a two-hander, I feel like it has aged into a movie where you don't empathize with Peter Falk at any point. And it is Mm -hmm. essentially kind of like a one-woman show where he happens to be giving a great performance, but as an asshole who is weirdly irrelevant to the experience of enjoying the movie, other than those moments where you start to realize he is the problem and he is so much less functional than her in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very, very true. Because I think that at the time, the movie would have been viewed in sort of a different way because obviously like the patriarch of the house you know, it was the breadwinner and it was the wife's job to stay home and take care of the kids and stuff like that. So because I guess that dynamic was um, different and because it wasn't the way that it was supposed to be, maybe audiences at the time had more sympathy for that patriarchal kind of character being like, oh yeah, it makes sense that he would constantly lose his temper and like beat everybody because, you know, his world, his wife isn't the way that she's supposed to be. I, I don't know. But you're right. I guess, <clears throat> excuse me, now when you watch it, it's like you mostly just have sympathy for Gina Rollins and not um, obviously for Peter Falk. Like, I'm sorry, I had zero sympathy for him the whole time. Um, a really intense scene as well is whenever they have the kid's birthday party. <laughs> oh, boy. And one of the parents stays at the party because they don't want to leave their kids alone with with uh, with Mabel because she is um, so off her rocker and they don't feel safe leaving her there. And then at one point, one of the kids is like not wearing their clothes. And then uh, the dad is just so outraged at the lack of discipline or how strange she's being. So then he goes up into the bedroom to get the kids because all the kids are upstairs in the bedroom but then that's when peter falk comes home and then he starts attacking this this kid's parent because he thought that he was trying to sleep with mabel and then there's they're in front of the children like this guy is being he's even threatening the kids peter falk is threatening the kids at one point and Gina is trying to just kind of manage the situation. Then, of course, like she gets hit and then it's in front of all the other kids. And it's just just these super heavy, intense domestic violence scenes that just feel so real and um, were just done so well. Scary. And um, very scary, very intense. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like there's a weird linchpin sort of key to the movie where it's he is worse off than her in the choices he makes, but the only difference between them is that he knows how to put on a face sometimes and like pretend to be a normal person, but his judgment is probably even worse than hers once you get into a domestic (laughs) situation. And I think the thing that would give me pause to the movie, and sort of my least favorite part of it, is everything about the abuse, as real as it is, uh, both the verbal abuse and the domestic abuse and some of the, uh, and the rapey moment and some of that stuff. But the, the ending uh, which has a domestic violence aspect for me, it was couched. The ending worked for me because of 
the tenderness that couched it with with saying good night and I love you to each of the kids and the concerns that came from some of the kids just because of Roland's and everything she brought to it. Uh, her facial reactions to hearing different things from her family members, it just, mm-hmm. oof, it, it melts me. I mean, another thing that I would say kind of melted me was whenever the doctor comes in and they kind of have the intervention, like you, we got to like, you need help. And um, the mother-in-law is there like screaming at her and um, the way that she's trying to bargain and the way that she starts to have another little episode and the way that she's trying to stay home and she doesn't want to go to this, you know, hospital facility or whatever it was. um, I I really like, it felt so real to me because um, I watched, I used to watch Intervention on A&E and obviously that's not the same thing, but it is people with mental health issues and people telling or asking this individual like for help and to get help. And it, it, you know, this, the way that she was acting that scene, it's like, you don't really have anything to compare that to because some show like intervention, like a reality show, like that wasn't a thing in the 1970s. So just the way that she kind of navigated that scene and brought the reality to like bargaining and not wanting to go, but also still having like these kind of moments. Um, again, that also just felt like so real and heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she blames the doctor too, and she tries to make him turn it on him and him being the problem. And, uh, um, just for time's sake, though, I do think that we should probably move on. But do you have anything else that you would like to add to the movie or to the performance before we move on? Uh, I think I would like a YouTube edit of uh, Peter Falk as the grandfather in The Princess Bride telling a story of a great romance, but it's just clips from a woman under the influence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Speaking of, I did not know that Peter Falk had a glass eye. I did not know that. What? What? He does? It was... <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was a little distracting at first. I was like, oh, is the character cross-eyed? And I was like, oh, no, he has a glass eye. Oh, okay, okay, okay. We can move on. But that that took that took me a second. Fascinating. Yeah, that one took me a second. Okay, so uh, let us talk about um, Diane Carroll in Claudine. So very quickly, in the 1970s Harlem, garbage collector Roop feels intimidated by the idea of dating Claudine, who is a single mother of six on welfare. And, oh my God, Roop is played by James Earl Jones. I have never in my life seen James Earl Jones in like a love interest capacity. So at first when um, Claudine is, uh, she's going to work at that house and then uh, Roop is like coming to pick up the trash and she's talking to him. I was looking at him and I'm like, wow, like he sounds very familiar. I was like... (laughs) Who who is that? And then I was like, oh my God, is that Darth Vader? I'm like, that's fucking James Earl Jones. I'm like, this is gonna be wild. And you know what? He did not disappoint. I actually loved him in this movie. And uh Diane Carroll, oh my God, she has such star quality. And I think that um the way that this story is told, you have very few sets. Um, but you have a lot of actors in these small spaces and the way that they all work together, um, I think is absolutely brilliant. Um, the way that Diane Carroll and her relationship with all her kids, listen, she does not look like any one of those kids. You know what I'm saying? Like, so clearly they are not her children. They're obviously all actors, but 
the best scenes in the movie from Claudine are with her children and you believe that they are her children. She has such wonderful chemistry with them and she has such wonderful presence on screen. Um, I've never heard of this movie before. I'd never seen it, but this was, um, I watched this one after uh, a woman under the influence. And this was just like a really nice, easy viewing kind of compared to Gina Rowlands and a woman under the, it was less intense is what I'm saying. So I, I really enjoyed this performance and I really enjoyed this film. Uh, what did you, what did you think? I loved it. Yeah. I, I also watched it right after a woman under the influence, which is interesting because a uh, woman under the influence has a character who is a friend who is a working class black man who can't keep track of the number of kids he has. And this almost felt like a spinoff. Right. <laughs> okay. But they are just so uh, winning. And uh, the romance is great. The story is great. And it was so refreshing to see a uh, black best actress nominee, of which there are so few nominees, only one winner to date. But that is not about yeah. tragedy. That is sort of about life. And is so different from anything in the 70s where it would have been either like a slave story or something black exploitation and super violent. And this was just sort of everyday, very real, very raw, sad, but warm. And with, with these moments of celebration and with these moments of comedy and Diane Carroll just being a star. I think her and James Earl Jones in the characters they play are both like weirdly sexy and also very... Um, just appealing and interesting and imperfect and complete each other at different times, but are bad for each other at other times. Uh, it's definitely more of a movie where you sympathize with her than him, but uh, mm. I, I love that about it. And I think she has these scenes with a, a social worker and then with one of her daughters back to back where I was just like, I cannot take my eyes off this woman and every choice she is making, the way she reacts to every line, the way she is lying to this social worker because she needs to, because they want to grab money for every single thing that Roop brings uh, into their lives. I, I, yeah, no, absolutely. And um, the way that uh, um, Diane Carroll, so just very quickly, just about this movie. So, the director actually felt that Diane Carroll was too sophisticated to play the role of a welfare mother. However, Carroll was actually from the Bronx and she knew women like Claudine and she knew that she could play the part as well as anybody else. Um, and I think that she definitely, she definitely sold it because there is this kind of, um, I, like, I know what you mean. Like there's this, this kind of like, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, she almost does maybe look a little too sophisticated. Like, but also at the same time, like that doesn't hurt the performance like at all. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes it's like, if you're going to tell like a dark story and it's like, you're going to have a movie star in there. It's like, it's going to be a little distracting to have this like gorgeous movie star to take away from like the reality of like the darkness of the theme. But I think to credit to her acting, that really was not the case. Um, and she absolutely, absolutely sold it. Um, also her daughter, Tamu Blackwell, who played Charlene, uh, I think, the best scenes uh, with Claudine were with Charlene, uh, like her getting pregnant and her warning her about men and, um, you know, how you can ruin your life. Just all it takes is one baby and how um, her relationship with her daughter was very complicated. And um, but there was still a lot of love there, even though at one point it kind of gets a little violent. But it was just her relationship with her children, it was all kind of different, 
but she manages like all of those kids and the scenes with all of those kids in the very convincing way. Like she is in charge and you do not mess with her kind of. And I just love that kind of energy. Um, But overall, like just this was such an enjoyable performance and it was just an enjoyable film. And you're right, coming from like the black exploitation films of the of the time, this movie was probably just presenting a reality of just a typical black family living, uh, you know, in the Bronx. So that was probably groundbreaking. And um, I just I I really I really enjoyed this movie a lot. Yeah, I, I feel like it's something of a turning point that really gets you like these glory days of, of mundane black stories after that, that are like beautifully mundane and almost celebratory. And Mm -hmm. uh, some of the genres I love the most of just like movies, like waiting to exhale in the nineties or like shows like girlfriends or uh, Jefferson's. It just felt like domestic and interesting. And I, I, I love that for them. And that daughter relationship is so good. And I, I don't think her glamorousness is a problem really. Um, I think she just seems as like someone who has, to me, that makes her seem like someone who has more potential that maybe she could fulfill and will one day fulfill, but she's doing her best. And it just makes her so compelling because, hey, if this was about a white working class family, they would get a movie star. So she deserves to look and be lit like a movie star and made up like a movie star, but have uh, not compromise reality in terms of the makeup or the hair or anything she is just she just is and and the claudine is is such a good movie <laughs> mm-hmm. I, i'm just so happy i discovered it because it is probably the least famous of these movies by far but it doesn't deserve to be and it right. is so cool it's just i love that there's not a big oscar scene the oscar scene is the uh adding up of the whole movie like it's just having spent time with her and caring about her and james Earl jones is there but I don't think it really matters uh, if you think they're great for each other or if you think she's too good for him. I think you can kind of settle either way because it's good that we're talking about this right before Alice. There's so many parallels there with the kids expressing uh, concerns of, is this like the other times? Do you really want to be with this guy this time? And Mm -hmm. uh, I think you don't necessarily know the answer to that, but I think that's fine because it's just, it's called Claudine. That's right. That's true. And you're right. Was there necessarily like a big Oscar scene? Like, no, but there were so many individual scenes with individual characters and her relationships with the different characters. It was all very layered and, and nuanced because it was like, Um, there were certain people where she was just having absolutely none of it, but then there were certain people where she was having none of it with like certain boundaries, like the social worker, for example, where it's like she would put her foot down, but there were limits to it or the way that she would be, um, you know, with, uh, with, with Roop on, uh, uh, James Earl Jones's character, um, whenever he would be like asking her about having six kids and she just fucking loses it. And she's like, who are you to judge me for having six kids? She's like, do you have kids? He's like, yes. She's like, so then what the fuck is your, like, I just love that she's having none of it. (laughs) It's like that for me was what really like sold the character. But then she also is doing everything that she can to keep her family going and, and safe. And it's just a very compelling story, but it's a very relatable story. And, um, I don't know. I just, yeah, like, you're right. I don't know. Was there necessarily, like, a big Oscar scene? Like, no, like, not necessarily. But I I think, for me, the best scenes were with her daughter. 
Yeah, and sometimes I don't want a big Oscar scene. Like some of the best winners, in my opinion, are people like Holly Hunter or Julia Roberts, where every scene is sort of the Oscar scene, and it's just about mm-hmm. the cumulative effect of spending time with that performer who understands that character and has a take and wants to tell it to you. And I also think so much of black audiences and black cinema, how much of it is about the communal experience in the theater and pumping your fist Mm -hmm. for this person. And the fact that she always has that snappy comeback, it just makes it such a celebratory story of, uh, is she always making the right choices or the best choices? No, but she is enough and she loves her family. And that should be enough for a movie. And it's the kind of movie that, probably would not get sold today without a hook, but it's from a time where we used to have real dramas and uh, it's, it's great for that reason. When also talking about the injustice and the, uh, the things that it made absolutely no sense uh, and poking out the logic in like the welfare and how to qualify for welfare and the things that don't, I'm sure like probably during that time, like in 1970s, like this was probably like social commentary as well. So a film like this is very important. Um, I, yeah, right. Yeah, like it's one of those things where it's like I'd, I'd never heard of this movie, but like I'm glad I've seen it now. It's a very, 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 very good. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think other than maybe Alice, unless I'm forgetting it, there is like a race relations aspect to all of these movies this week. But this is the only one where it doesn't dwell on it. It doesn't really even really have a major white character. And for that reason, it just feels a lot more authentic. It is more about it's about race, but it's not about races interacting with each other and like coming to understand each other. It just it's about the facts of life. Yeah. Oh, exactly. That's that's a really good way of putting it. Um, but just for time's sake, I think that we should move on. Do you have anything else that you would like to add? No, I love it. Okay. Let's talk about our winner, Ellen Burstyn, for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. So this was her third Oscar nomination. She had been nominated for The Last Picture Show and for The Exorcist. And um, at the time, The Exorcist was like one of the biggest movies of all time. Well, I guess it still kind of is. And Ellen Burstyn, was, uh, her performance was very critically acclaimed. So I think that a lot of the win for this Oscar was like, well, you know, she's due. And... Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore is directed by Martin Scorsese. It's probably a movie that a lot of Martin Scorsese fans maybe haven't heard of before. I believe that after her performance in The Exorcist, um, the uh, studio gave her uh, creative control over this role. She got to hire um, the director um, and she decided uh, to talk to Francis Ford Coppola and Francis Ford Coppola was like, oh, like maybe you should try out this Martin Scorsese guy. And obviously like it worked out. Um, but the only way that she was going to have him is she was like, do you even understand like, you know, women? Do you understand what it's like to to be a woman or to tell a woman's story? And then apparently Martin Scorsese was answered by saying like, no, but I really would love to learn. And I guess that Aww. Ellen Burstyn, yeah, like loved that as an answer. And so that's why she picked him as a director. A lot of the things that I saw about this movie were actually mostly about Martin Scorsese and not about Ellen Burstyn, which I think is just so indicative of, you know, the users on IMDb and what they value. But that being said though, so very quickly, um, we did talk about this before whenever we talked about um, <clears throat> Diane Ladd. So if you have listened to that episode where um, Ingrid Bergman won for the mur- murder on the Orange Express, I'm not really going to be repeating a lot of the facts about this movie. Uh, but um, anyway, very quickly, a recently widowed woman um, is on the road with her precocious young son determined to make a new life for herself as a singer. I don't know why he's described as precocious because I don't know if I would describe I would call him annoying. 
in this movie. But this movie's not categorized as a comedy, which I find very interesting because there are so many comedic moments. And Ellen Burstyn is so good at comedic acting. Like my, when I think about this movie, I always think about the scene whenever the kid is telling the story about the dog and the gorilla and like his balls. And then like, he won't stop telling the story. And, um, Ellen Burstyn starts crying because he starts telling it again. The way that she's like, oh my God, no. Like the way she says it is so funny and just such great comedic acting. And apparently that joke was like put in there because like the, the young actor was like telling that story to Martin Scorsese and was being like really annoying. And Martin Scorsese was like, let's just annoy the shit out of Ellen Burstyn because this is something the kid would probably do. And that's like why they use that scene. It's actually my favorite scene of the whole movie. Um, But anyway, so uh, what did you think about this performance and what did you think about the film? I love the film. I love the performance. Uh, it's another one that really blew me away. I think Lenny is the only movie this week that I merely liked. The other four... I'm a little bit over the moon for, but this one in particular is very interesting in its specifics. It's a movie for all of the uh, Marvel fanboys who claim that Martin Scorsese just makes the same mafia movie over and over again. It is not right. a, a typical uh, Scorsese movie. Uh, he's got a few female protagonists over the years, but uh, probably none that is a performance quite this commanding. And some people say it's uh Rings a little false has like too happy an ending. I don't really think it's a happy ending. I think all the men in this movie are like different flavors of terrible in different ways in their <laughs> lives. And the Chris Christopherson character maybe seems better now, but he's also a little abusive to the kid. And there are warning signs there. And their big diner uh, makeup scene is almost it almost rings like falsely Hollywoodish and old Hollywoodish. Mm. And knowing mm. Scorsese, I feel like that's sort of on purpose, where it's the one moment that isn't like hyper realism in this movie. Because Harvey Keitel before that is terrifying when he's breaking the window. And uh, Burstyn, she just reacts. Like to me, this is a feminist movie, not because she has a feminist awakening, but because her life and her making a choice and running and sometimes screwing up and knowing when to run when she really has to is enough. And that's a story. And so much of it is just her bumbling around, looking for work, getting checked out, like just the day to day grind. It is like the equivalent of a woman under the influence, but for a, a woman who just the uh, equally bad experience of like just being a woman, basically uh, in, instead of a mental illness narrative, it's just, the day-to-day evils and mundanities. And uh, I didn't even hate the kid. I, this is the only movie that we're talking about, by the way, where a woman is actually first billed in the credits because the others all have these two protagonists. And in this one, essentially the largest male role is a kid. So uh, they got to give it up to her because to me, it's not a romance. To me, it's a character study. It's about her and there are romances in it, but you are supposed to be asking questions. I mean, the first question that I had, because she's in a very abusive marriage, but then like sometimes he spoons her. So it's fine. And I was like, okay, so we're back to the abusive thing. That just seems to be the fragrance this year, uh, which again, I, I just, ugh, just was rolling my eyes at that. And um, that was getting annoying. But then he died. And then I was like, oh, thank God. 
So then she moves, but I also didn't understand why she initially moved to remember like when she moved to that town where she actually got a job, like singing in that lounge, like, was it be- like, obviously she had to like sell the house because like she couldn't work, but like, why couldn't she just find a job like where they were originally living? Uh, well, does she move after, uh, she has the younger man, Harvey Keitel, like freak out. And then she ends up in the new town with the diner with Chris Christopherson. Cause she might've just not no, but like the to be first, around. but the first initial, that, yeah, I, I, I didn't understand that. Maybe it was the same town, but you know, she was saying goodbye to like her neighbor and stuff like that. So I, I just thought that was a little, I, I didn't understand why she was like completely moving and leaving New Mexico. Um, but what I do know is that of all of these films, this was the movie that I found to be the most, like, I would totally just watch this again. Like I would just, if I was going through Netflix and I saw Alice doesn't live here anymore is now available on Netflix. Like I would put it on and I would watch it. It's the most like, they made it a crowd pleaser. Like they made it a sitcom. It is just a comforting vibe in a way. And it's got that, Scorsese like old Hollywood classical instincts. It's got this opening in of her as a child in a different aspect ratio that just feels like uh, Judy Garland singing uh, totally different filters and just wandering farmland. And it's a, it was like demonic looking the red. Yeah, it's a it was spooky. <laughs> it's a very beautiful movie, and and he frames it really well, and everyone's really good in it. I loved Diane Ladd, and uh, I, mm-hmm. I I like her more than I like Ingrid Bergman in uh, Orient Express for sure. But mm. um, especially because she had already won twice. But uh, yeah, that is the the dynamics in the diner, especially. Whenever she's away from the kid, it gets even better because she is starting to play with actors as good as her, whether it's Chris Christopherson or Diane Ladd. Burston is just blowing them off the screen. I think she's one of the great Scorsese characters, period, and one of the great film characters. Uh, I just love Alice. I feel for her, and I feel... Yeah, her early marriage is confusing, but I feel like a lot of it is obviously a, a reality a lot of a lot of women stay with abusers because of the tender moments they assume are worth something but mm-hmm. i feel like ultimately the reason she's always moving is we're just taught that for whatever reason her instinct is to run from conflict and it always will be mm-hmm. and to that effect once chris christopherson hits the kid i'm like maybe she would run again at the end of this we don't really know and the kid seems to have some uh, doubts super late in the movie he's like are you sure you want this but it's her story, and it. I guess it's just, it's called Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. She doesn't live there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that she does a lot of the emotional heavy lifting. Um, I, I, like, this is just a minor thing, but I really did not enjoy the performance from the child Tommy. Um, yeah. Alfred, Alfred Lutter. I, I, I just thought that he kind of just didn't add anything to the scenes or enough to the scenes, like emotionally speaking, like especially after his father died, I just felt like he did not give a fuck. He's, it just seemed he's like no would... Jodie Foster in terms of the kids. Here. Oh my God. Let's talk about baby Jodie Foster. Holy shit. I literally was like, cause she actually kind of reads as very boyish um, at, at the very beginning. And I was like, wait a minute. I was like, is that Jodie Foster? I was like, that is Jodie Foster. Okay. But then at one point she wears a skirt and you're like, oh, okay. It, it is a girl. Cause I, I, you would not be, able to tell at first yeah. uh, that that was Jodie Foster. Smaller than um, that, but it's before Taxi Driver. And we got Baby Laura Dern as well. 
At Baby Laura Jones, yeah, she had uh, she had eaten like 20 ice cream cones because they had to do 20 takes of a diner scene, and apparently she didn't get sick. And then Martin Scorsese was like, well, if she can take 20 ice cream cones and not get sick, then she must be an actress. We all so have. So that's just kind of, yeah. <laughs> um, the line, Ellen Burstyn, that she said, like, uh, he's like, oh, you want to sing? All right, turn around. Like, let me, let me get a look at you. And she goes, I don't sing with my ass. Apparently that was um, improv. Yeah, I buy uh, it. Just a little, yeah. She seems <laughs> but, so cool. <laughs> but um, I absolutely think that um, when it's dramatic, it has to be dramatic, especially whenever um, what's-his-face there is like breaking into the hotel room to grab his wife and then it turns out they're having an affair and then she runs away and the way that she navigates those scenes whenever um, Chris Christopherson hits uh, Tommy and the, the, the way she reacts to that and the way that she just... I think that her emotional responses, what you were saying earlier, is is it? It's just her reactions are so good and so realistic, but it doesn't make for like this big, like heavy drama. Like there are really dark themes in this movie, but it doesn't feel like that. It still kind of has that like Aaron Brockovich, like I'm in for the ride and I I really am invested and I want to know what's going on. But it's also kind of like a feel good movie in a way. Absolutely, and. I just really like the balance of that because, again, I'm also just kind of surprised that this movie is not um, categorized as like a, a like a dramedy because there are actually a lot of really funny moments. I mean, especially with Flo, uh, with a kid, um, just in general. Like, I just think that Ellen Burstyn is really demonstrating sort of her range for this character, Alice, and... Uh, God, you know, we're talking about this now, and I'm literally like, I don't know who the fuck I'm going to pick. I'm, I'm right. Like- <laughs> I'm right there with you, and it, you're so right. She's so funny here, and in developing this project from for herself, it is such a salvation from getting typecast after The Exorcist the previous year and just getting all mm-hmm. these offers for horror movies. That's what would happen if she didn't do something very different very soon and she wins an Oscar. And it's almost surprising that this performance won because it's a little subtler than some of the other ones. But it's also undeniable and it's at the end of such a good run if you also include Last Picture Show that it's just like, there are so many winners that could have picked here where I'd be like, I get it. Oh, 100%. And... The thing is, is each one of these performances, it's like they're shining uh, in in different ways, obviously. Um, but I mean, it yeah. Oh god, this is this is really really tricky. And hmm. Diane Keaton is not here for The Godfather Two. That is how good this year was for Best Actress. Like that is wild. Yeah. <laughs> was it you that was going on about how important Diane Keaton is to The Godfather and the movies? No, but it should have been me. I can't. I had. I can't remember who it was. I had a guest on, or was it? Was it Catherine? I cannot remember. I had a guest on this podcast, and they just believe that that Diane Keaton is the most important, not important piece of the Godfather movies. Like I'm just and, realizing that she was not nominated for any of those, and neither was Fredo, which is which is wild. Yeah, but. Uh, um, Talia Shire was nominated for Godfather Part Two, and I had to watch that movie. She's only in it for like five minutes, and that's a big thing with the supporting actresses. Yep. When you go like pre two thousands, it's always like these five minute performances and three hour movies, and um, <laughs> that's why generally I mostly just do lead actress episodes, just because some of them can be a little 
a little painful, but um, the, the weird thing is there are great supporting actress performances in like 20th oh, yeah. century, even even in the 50s and 40s. But it's always just whatever was the best picture movie, whatever woman happens to be in that. That's who they nominate instead. Oh yeah, no, 100. percent Um, like you could fill like a the lot of them are painful <laughs> with just people from Alice doesn't live here anymore, and like people from the ensembles or people who have small parts in like Chinatown. But uh, they always they always go for. I don't know, something a little more boring in that category sometimes. They used to. Thankfully, it's great now. Well, apparently, yeah, yes, it it has certainly gotten a lot better. But you're right. There's obviously a lot of amazing performances throughout the history in the supporting role. But then it's usually one amazing performance and like three or four like meh. But that being said, well, not meh performances, but just very short yeah. performances in these long movies. But um, another little fact, Shirley MacLaine actually turned down the role of Alice and she admitted later regretting it. But just for time's sake, I think that we should probably uh, pick our winner here. So, oh God, I, I'm still not really sure, but um, you are my guest of honor. So uh, you will have the pledge of deciding who you think that the Oscar should have gone to first. Okay. Oh, geez. What am I going to do here? All right. <laughs> I actually uh, need the pause I'm going to leave this time because uh, that's when I'll decide. I think yeah. <laughs> I think that the Oscar should have gone to Jenna Rollins, Woman Under the Influence. It oh, wow. was wild. Uh, probably my favorite of these movies. And maybe I'm just motivated by thinking that you're not going to pick it and not wanting us like it's one where we deserve to have two different winners because it's such a strong field. But it was just one where the movie is nothing without that performance. And it's the one where she feels the most irreplaceable in that way. I know that Cassavetes wanted to do it as a play and she's like, there is no way that someone could do that demanding role every night. Like you have to make it a movie. And to me, it is just right. a movie that lives and dies on her. And and to a lesser extent, Peter Falk, but especially her. She is the woman under the influence. We've actually got uh, three movies that are titled after the female character in some way. But uh, <laughs> Progress. <laughs> progress. <laughs> this is when it began. But uh, yeah, there is something about General. My runner-up would actually probably be Diane Carroll. But um, mm. I have to think about all five of them, really. It is such a strong year. And I have no disrespect for the fact that Burston won. I'm very happy she has an Oscar. I'm very happy it is for one of her best performances and possibly her best performance or maybe tied with Requiem for a Dream. But yeah, uh, yeah it is such a strong year. But General is just one of those crazy people to not have an Oscar win for me. Kind of like, uh, you know, John Goodman or Glenn Close or uh, Barbara Stanwyck, that, that level of, of performer. Mm-hmm. Um, very well said. And I totally get that decision. And you, I, okay. So I think that the Oscar should have gone to. Ellen Burstyn for Alice doesn't live here anymore. Yay. So yeah, I love that you, picked general ones because in that way we could split it because I would actually say this is because this is really tricky for me. My second place is Valerie Perrine for Lenny and general ones like at the same time, but I also don't believe in ties on this show. So I wouldn't do that. So for me, all it comes down to because all of these performances are so different and so brilliant in their own way. But the thing for me that 
makes um, Ellen Burstyn in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore um, the winner is I just love, it's just my favorite movie of the bunch because I've seen it before. I'll watch it again. It's a movie that if it was on TV, I would sit down and just watch it. It's enjoyable. It's funny. It's dramatic. It just, for me, just kind of checks all the boxes that you want from a movie and from like a best actress performance, like um, Julia Roberts in Aaron Brockovich, you know? Um, So good. And I just think that it's like, she's coming off of The Exorcist, which is like a horror movie. And then to be able to do this kind of comedy drama, uh, road trip romance story, it just really shows her range. Um, I really just enjoy her in the movie. And I think that she navigates the scenes so, so well. And, and again, the fact that it's like, a, it, it's very heavy in some parts, it still doesn't feel like a heavy movie. And I, I think that that's also a credit to the performance and also to the direction. Um, but Valerie Perrine in Lenny, I totally, I think she won the BAFTA for like Promising Newcomer, which is like, you know, Best New Artist of the Grammys kind of thing. So it's like, at least she won something. And Jenna Rollins won a bunch of these precursor awards leading up to it. So it's like, they all kind of had their little, you know, day in the sun. So so I am glad about that. But the only reason why I wouldn't put Jenna Rollins as first is because her is just, I hated the movie. Like her performance is so good. And if she had one, I'd be like, yeah, that makes complete sense. But I just hated the movie. So I'm going to go with Ellen Burson for Alice doesn't live here anymore. Very nice. Yeah. I think Jenna Rollins was probably the runner up at the actual Oscars. Yeah. Yeah. Burston also great. And just the fact that she could make scenes with that bad actor kid into great scenes (laughs) <laughs> is an accomplishment in itself. And by that the way, true. this year is so good that when we were talking about Chinatown first, we said all these platitudes of like the other four can't compare to Fade Dunaway in X category and Y category. And Fade Dunaway is so special and the most fun of this year in all these ways. And she's the only one we did not mention at the end. So that's how good all five of them are. That's so true. It's funny because when I was going through my list and I looked at Faye Dunaway in Chinatown and I was like, hmm. No, <laughs> she was like the first one that I knocked off. I was like, uh, no, but it's still an amazing performance. So yeah, bet, it's a very strong year. Especially because supporting went to uh, Ingrid Bergman for the third time. Like I bet if Perrin or Dunaway was in that category, they would have just taken it. They should have done that. I mean, that's what they do now, right? Like Viola Davis and Fences. They just yeah. go down to supporting just to secure a win. But... Yeah, pretty well. Okay, well, that concludes another episode of Best Actress. Where can people find you on social media, Josh? Oh, boy. Do I have a plug for this podcast? I have, I'm sure you can relate to this. I have decided that I should be famous. Yep. And (laughs) I have gotten in uh, Twitter as we record this is like dying a slow death. But I have decided to get uh, famous on the new social media app Hive. And I have started something called uh, Forgotten Great Film Performances. I actually got the handle at performances. And uh, if you have Hive, you can follow me there. Otherwise, I'm Mosh Jury on everything. But yeah, I think I'm going to do a post about probably Diane Carroll, because I think that's probably the least famous of these. And uh, I'll probably do that right when this episode drops. So yeah. But otherwise, I'm Mosh Jury. And uh, if you're in the Ottawa area, you can probably see me do stand-up or host trivia or all kinds of things like that. And watch uh, TV with Describe Video <laughs> in Canada. Oh, I love that. That's such a great plug. Also, when he says the area, he means Ottawa, Gatineau area yep. for anybody listening. Okay, well, Josh, thank you so much. And we'll definitely have to have you back again. Bye. Bye.
Did you enjoy the show? Want to hear more episodes? Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to access our entire catalog of episodes ad-free with your subscription. Subscribers also get access to new episodes one day earlier than everyone else. Oh my god. Go to patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe, and I will see you all at Howard's Inn.